0: I'll be beginning a new story. If you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know this to be the second book in the Emily of New Moon series. Emily Climes. In this first chapter, writing herself out, Emily gets a new diary and writes in it all of the things we've missed since we last left her. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter One Writing Herself Out Emily Bird Star was alone in her room, in the old New Moon farmhouse at Blairwater, one stormy night in a February of the olden years, before the world turned upside down. She was at that moment as perfectly happy as any human being is ever permitted to be, Aunt Elizabeth, in consideration of the coldness of the night, had allowed her to have a fire in her little fireplace, a rare favour. It was burning brightly and showering a red-golden light over the small, immaculate room. With its old-time furniture and deep-set, wild-silled windows... To whose frosted, blue-white panes with the snowflakes clung in little wreaths. It lent depth and mystery to the mirror on the wall, which reflected Emily as she sat coiled on the ottoman before the fire, writing by the light of two tall, white candles which were the only approved means of illumination at New Moon. In a brand new, glossy, black Jimmy book, which Cousin Jimmy had given her that day. Emily had been very glad to get it, for she had filled the one he had given her the preceding autumn, and for over a week... She had suffered acute pangs of suppression because she could not write in a non-existent diary. Her diary had become a dominant factor in her young, vivid life. It had taken the place of certain letters she had written in her childhood to her dead father, in which she had been wont to write out. Her problems and worries. For even in the magic years when one is almost fourteen, one has problems and worries. Especially when one is under the strict and well-meant, but not ever so tender, governance of an Aunt Elizabeth Murray. Sometimes Emily felt that if it were not for her diary, she would have flown into the little bits by reason of consuming her own smoke. The fat, black jimmy book seemed to her like a personal friend and a safe confidant for certain matters which burned for expression and yet were too combustible to be trusted to the years of any living being. Now, blank books of any sort were not easy to come by at New Moon, and if it had not been for Cousin Jimmy, Emily might never have had one. Certainly Aunt Elizabeth would not have given her one. Aunt Elizabeth thought Emily wasted far too much time over her scribbling nonsense as it was. And Aunt Laura did not dare to go contrary to Aunt Elizabeth in this, more by token that Laura herself really thought Emily might be better employed. Aunt Laura was a jewel of a woman, but certain things were holden from her eyes. Now, Cousin Jimmy was never in the least frightened of Aunt Elizabeth, and when the notion occurred to him that Emily probably wanted another blank book, that blank book materialized straight away in defiance of Aunt Elizabeth's scornful glances. He had gone to Shrewsbury that very day in the teeth of the rising storm, for no other reason than to get it. So Emily was happy, in her subtle and friendly firelight, while the wind howled and shrieked through the great old trees to the north of New Moon, sent huge, spectral wreaths of snow whirling across Cousin Jimmy's famous garden drifted the sundial completely over and whistled eerily through the three princesses, as Emily always called the three tall Lombardies in the corner of the garden. "'I love a storm like this at night, when I don't have to go out in it,' wrote Emily. "'Cousin Jimmy and I had a splendid evening.' planning out our garden and choosing our seeds and plants in the catalogue. Just where the biggest drift is making, behind the summer house, we're going to have a bed of pink asters, and we're going to give the golden ones, who are dreaming under four feet of snow, a background of flowering almond. I love to plan out summer days like this, in the midst of a storm. It makes me feel as if I were winning a victory over something ever so much bigger than myself. Just because I have a brain, and the storm is nothing but blind, white force. Terrible, but blind. I have the same feeling when I sit here cosily by my own dear fire and hear it raging all around me, and I laugh at it. And that is just because, over a hundred years ago, great-great-grandfather Murray built this house and built it well. I wonder if, a hundred years from now, Anybody will win a victory over anything because of something I left or did. It is an inspiring thought. I drew that line of italics before I thought. Mr. Carpenter says I use far too many italics. He says it is an early Victorian obsession And I must strive to cast it off. I concluded I would when I looked in the dictionary, for it is evidently not a nice thing to be obsessed, though it doesn't seem quite so bad as to be possessed. There I go again, but I think the italics are all right this time. I read the dictionary for a whole hour. Till Aunt Elizabeth got suspicious and suggested that it would be much better for me to be knitting my ribbed stockings. She couldn't see exactly why it was wrong for me to be poring over the dictionary, but she felt sure it must be because she never wants to do it. I love reading the dictionary. Yes, those italics are necessary, Mr. Carpenter. An ordinary love wouldn't express my feeling at all. Words are such fascinating things. I caught myself at the first syllable that time. The very sound of some of them. Haunted. Mystic, for example gives me the flash. Oh dear, but I have to italicise the flash. It isn't ordinary. It's the most extraordinary and wonderful thing in my whole life. When it comes, I feel as if a door had swung open in a wall before me and given me a glimpse of yes, of heaven. More italics. Oh, I see why Mr. Carpenter scolds. I must break myself of the habit. Big words are never beautiful, incriminating, obstreperous, international, unconstitutional. They make me think of those horrible, big dahlias and chrysanthemums Cousin Jimmy took me to see at the exhibition in Charlottetown last fall. We couldn't see anything lovely in them, though some people thought them wonderful. Cousin Jimmy's little yellow, mums like pale, fairy-like stars, Shining against the fir copse in the northwest corner of the garden were ten times more beautiful. But I am wandering from my subject, also a bad habit of mine, according to Mr. Carpenter. He says I must, the italics are his this time, learn to concentrate, another big word and a very ugly one. But I had a good time over the dictionary, much better than I had over the ribbed stockings. I wish I could have a pair, just one pair, of silk stockings. Isla has three. Her father gives her everything she wants, now that he has learned to love her again. But Aunt Elizabeth says silk stockings are immoral. I wonder why. Any more than silk dresses. Speaking of silk dresses, Aunt Jamie Milburn at Derry Pond. She isn't any relation, really, but everybody calls her that. Has made a vow but she will never wear a silk dress until the whole heathen world is converted to Christianity. That is very fine. I wish I could be as good as that, but I couldn't. I love silk too much. It is so rich and sheeny. I would like to dress in it all the time and if I could afford to, I would. Though I suppose every time I thought of dear old Aunt Jamie and the unconverted heathen, I would feel conscience-stricken. However, it will be years, if ever, before I can afford to buy even one silk dress. And meanwhile, I give some of my egg money, every month to the missions. I have five hens of my own now, all descended from the grey poulet Perry gave me on my twelfth birthday. If ever I can buy that one silk dress, I know what it's going to be like. Not black, or brown, or navy blue. Sensible, serviceable colours such as new moon Murray's always wear. Oh dear no. It will be of shot silk, blue in one light, silver in others, like a twilight sky, glimpsed through a frosted window pane, with a bit of lace foam here and there, like those little feathers of snow Clinging to my window pane. Teddy says he will paint me in it and call it the Ice Maiden. And Aunt Laura smiles and says, sweetly and condescendingly, in a way I hate even in dear Aunt Laura. What use would such a dress be to you, Emily? It mightn't be of any use, but I would feel in it as if it were a part of me, that it grew on me and wasn't just bought and put on. I want one dress like that in my lifetime, and a silk petticoat underneath it, and silk stockings. Isla has a silk dress now. A bright pink one. Aunt Elizabeth says Dr. Burnley dresses Isla far too old and rich for a child. But he wants to make up for all the years he didn't dress her at all. I don't mean she went naked, but she might have, as far as Dr. Burnley was concerned. Other people had to see to her clothes. He does everything she wants him to now, and gives her her own way in everything. Aunt Elizabeth says it is very bad for her, but there are times when I envy Isla a little. I know it is wicked, but I cannot help it. Dr. Burnley is going to send Isla to Shrewsbury High School next fall and after that, to Montreal to study elocution. That is why I envy her, not because of the silk dress. I wish Aunt Elizabeth would let me go to Shrewsbury, but I fear she never will. She feels she can't trust me out of her sight because my mother eloped, but she need not be afraid I will ever elope. I have made up my mind that I will never marry. I shall be wedded to my art. Teddy wants to go to Shrewsbury next fall, but his mother won't let him go either. Not that she is afraid of his eloping, but because she loves him so much. She can't part with him. Teddy wants to be an artist, and Mr. Carpenter says he has genius and should have his chance, but everybody is afraid to say anything to Mrs. Kent. She is a little bit of a woman, no taller than I am, really, quiet and shy, and yet everyone is afraid of her. I am dreadfully afraid. I've always known she didn't like me, ever since those days long ago when Isla and I first went up to the Tansy Patch to play with Teddy. But now she hates me. I feel sure of it. Just because Teddy likes me, She can't bear to have him like anybody or anything but her. She is even jealous of his pictures, so there is not much chance of his getting to Shrewsbury. Perry is going. He hasn't a cent, but he's going to work his way through. That is why he thinks he will go to Shrewsbury in place of Queen's Academy. He thinks it will be easier to get work to do in Shrewsbury, and board is cheaper there. My old beast of an Aunt Tom has a little money, he told me, but she won't give me any of it, unless, unless. Then he looked at me significantly. I blushed because I couldn't help it. And then I was furious with myself for blushing, and with Perry, because he referred to something I didn't want to hear about. That time ever so long ago, when his Aunt Tom met with me in Lofty John's Bush, and nearly frightened me to death by demanding that I promise to marry Perry when I grew up, in which case she would educate him. I never told anybody about it, being ashamed, except Isla, and she said the idea of old Aunt Tom aspiring to a Murray for Perry. But then, Isla is awfully hard on Perry and quarrels with him half the time over things I only smile at. Perry never likes to be outdone by anyone or anything. When we were at Amy Moore's party last week, her uncle told us a story of some remarkable freak calf he had seen with three legs, and Perry said, "'Oh, that's nothing to a duck I saw once in Norway.' Perry really was in Norway. He used to sail everywhere with his father when he was little. But I don't believe one word about the duck. He wasn't lying. He was just romancing. Dear Mr. Carpenter, I can't get along without it, Alex. Perry's duck had four legs, according to him. Two where a proper duck's legs should be, and two sprouting from its back, and when it got tired of walking on its ordinary pair, it flopped over onto its back and walked on the other pair. Perry told this yarn with a sober face, and everybody laughed, and Amy's uncle said, Go up head, Perry. But Isla was furious and wouldn't speak to him all the way home. She said he had made a fool of himself, trying to show off with a silly little story like that, and that no gentleman would act so. Perry said, I'm no gentleman yet, only a hired boy. But someday, Miss Isla, I'll be a finer gentleman than anyone you know. Gentlemen, said Isla in a nasty voice, have to be born. They can't be made, you know. Isla has almost given up calling names, as she used to do when she quarrelled with Perry or me, and taken to saying cruel, cutting things. They hurt far worse than the names used to, but I don't really mind them, much or long, because I know Isla doesn't mean them, and really loves me as much as I love her. But Perry says they stick in his crop. They didn't speak to each other the rest of the way home, but next day Isla was at him again, about using bad grammar and not standing up when a lady enters the room. Of course you couldn't be expected to know that, she said in her nastiest voice. But I am sure Mr. Carpenter has done his best to teach you grammar. Perry didn't say one word to Isla, but he turned to me. "'Will you tell me my faults?' he said. "'I don't mind you doing it. "'It will be you that will have to put up with them when we're grown up, not Isla.' "'He said that to make Isla angry, but it made me angrier still, "'for it was an allusion to a forbidden topic.' so we neither of us spoke to him for two days, and he said it was a good rest from Isla's slams anyway. Perry is not the only one who gets into disgrace at New Moon. I said something silly yesterday evening, which made me blush to recall it. The ladies' aid met here, and Aunt Elizabeth gave them a supper And the husbands of the eight came to it. Isla and I waited on the table, which was set in the kitchen because the dining room table wasn't long enough. It was exciting at first, and then, when everyone was served, it was a little dull, and I began to compose some poetry in my mind as I stood by the window. "'looking out on the garden. "'It was so interesting that I soon forgot everything else "'until suddenly I heard Aunt Elizabeth say, "'Emily,' very sharply, "'and then she looked significantly at Mr Johnson, our new minister. "'I was confused and I snatched up the teapot and exclaimed— Oh, Mr. Cup, will you have your Johnson filled? Everybody roared, and Aunt Elizabeth looked disgusted, and Aunt Laura ashamed, and I felt as if I would sink through the floor. I couldn't sleep half the night for thinking over it. The strange thing was that I do believe I felt worse and more ashamed than I would have felt if I'd done something really wrong. This is the Murray Pride, of course, and I suppose it is very wicked. Sometimes I'm afraid Aunt Ruth Dutton is right in her opinion of me after all. No, she isn't. But it is a tradition of new moon, that its women should be equal to any situation and always be graceful and dignified. Now, there was nothing graceful or dignified in asking such a question of the new minister. I am sure he will never see me again without thinking of it, and I will always writhe when I catch his eye upon me. But now that I have written it out in my diary, I don't feel so bad over it. Nothing ever seems as big or as terrible. Oh, nor as beautiful and grand either, alas. When it is written out, as it does when you are thinking or feeling about it. It seems to shrink directly you put it into words. Even the line of poetry I had made just before I asked that absurd question won't seem half as fine when I write it down. Where the velvet feet of darkness softly go. It doesn't. Some bloom seems gone from it. And yet, while I was standing there, behind all those chattering eating people, and saw darkness stealing so softly over the garden and the hills, like a beautiful woman robed in shadows, with stars for eyes. The flash came, and I forgot everything but that I wanted to put something of the beauty I felt into the words of a poem. When that line came into my mind, it didn't seem to me that I composed it at all. It seemed as if something else were trying to speak through me. And it was that something else that made the line seem wonderful. And now when it is gone, the words seem flat and foolish, and the picture I tried to draw in them not so wonderful. After all. Oh, if I could only put things into words as I see them. Mr. Carpenter says, Strive, strive, keep on. Words are your medium. Make them your slaves, until they will say for you what you want them to say. This is true, and I do try, but it seems to me there is something beyond words. Any words. All words. Something that always escapes you when you try to grasp it, and yet leaves something in your hand which you wouldn't have had if you hadn't reached for it. I remember one day, last fall, when Dean and I walked over the delectable mountain to the woods beyond it, fir woods mostly, but with one corner of splendid old pines. We sat under them, and Dean read Peveril of the Peak and some of Scott's poems to me, and then he looked up into the big, plumy boughs and said, The gods are talking in the pines, gods of the old Northland, of the Viking sagas. Star, do you know Emerson's lines? And then he quoted them. I've remembered and loved them ever since. The gods talk in the breadth of the world, they talk in the shaken pine and they fill the reach of the old seashore with dialogue divine. And the poet who overhears one random word they say is the fated man of men whom the ages must obey. Oh, that random word, that is the something that escapes me. I'm always listening for it, I know I can never hear it, my ear isn't attuned to it, but I'm sure I hear it at times a little, faint, far-off echoes of it, and it makes me feel a delight that is like pain and a despair of ever being able to translate its beauty into any words I know. Still, it is a pity I made such a goose of myself immediately after that wonderful experience. If I had just floated up behind Mr. Johnson, as velvet-footedly as the darkness herself, and poured his tea gracefully from Great Grandmother Murray's silver teapot, like my shadow woman, pouring night into the white cup of Blair Valley. Aunt Elizabeth would be far better pleased with me than if I could write the most wonderful poem in the world. Cousin Jimmy is so different. I recited my poem to him this evening after we had finished with the catalogue, and he thought it was beautiful. He couldn't know how far it fell short of what I had seen in my mind. Cousin Jimmy composes poetry himself. He's very clever in spots, and in other spots where his brain was hurt when Aunt Elizabeth pushed him into our new moon well. He isn't anything. There's just blankness there, so people call him simple and Aunt Ruth dares to say he hasn't any sense enough to shoe a cat from cream. And yet, if you put all his clever spots together, there isn't anybody in Blairwater has half as much real cleverness as he has. Not even Mr. Carpenter. The trouble is, you can't put his clever spots together, There are always those gaps between. But I love Cousin Jimmy, and I'm never in the least afraid of him when his strange spells come on. Everybody else is, even Aunt Elizabeth, though perhaps it is remorse with her instead of fear. Except Perry, Perry always brags that he is never afraid of anything, doesn't know what fear is. I think that is very wonderful. I wish I could be so fearless. Mr. Carpenter says fear is a vile thing and is at the bottom of almost every wrong and hatred of the world. Cast it out, Jade, he says. Cast it out of your heart. Fear is a confession of weakness. What you fear is stronger than you, or you think it is, else you wouldn't be afraid of it. Remember your Emerson. Always do what you are afraid to do. But that... Is a council of perfection, as Dean says, and I don't believe I'll ever be able to attain it. To be honest, I'm afraid of a good many things, but there are only two people in the world I'm truly afraid of. One is Mrs. Kent, and the other is Mad Mr. Morrison. I'm terribly afraid of him, and I think almost everyone is. His home is in Derry Pond, but he hardly ever stays there. He roams over the country looking for his lost bride. He was married only a few weeks when his young wife died, many years ago, and he has never been right in his mind since. He insists she is not dead, only lost, and that he will find her sometime. He has grown old and bent looking for her, but to him she is still young and fair. He was here one day last summer, but would not come in, just peered into the kitchen wistfully and said, Is Annie here? He was quite gentle that day, but sometimes he is very wild and violent. He declares he always hears Annie calling to him, that her voice flits on before him, always before him, like my random word. His face is wrinkled and shriveled and he looks like an old old monkey but the thing I hate most about him is his right hand it is a deep blood red all over birthmarked I can't tell why but that hand fills me with horror I could not bear to touch it and sometimes he laughs to himself very horribly. The only living thing he seems to care for is his old black dog that's always with him. They say he will never ask for a bite of food for himself. If people do not offer it to him, he goes hungry, but he will beg for his dog. Oh, I am terribly afraid of him, and I was so glad he didn't come into the house that day. Aunt Elizabeth looked after him as he went away with his long, grey hair streaming in the wind, and said, Fairfax Morrison was once a fine, clever young man with excellent prospects. Well, God's ways are very mysterious. That is why they are interesting, I said. But Aunt Elizabeth frowned and told me not to be irreverent, as she always does when I say something about God. I wonder why. She won't let Perry and me talk about him, though Perry is really very much interested in him and wants to find out all about him. Aunt Elizabeth overheard me telling Perry one Sunday afternoon what I thought God was like, and she said it was scandalous. It wasn't. The trouble is... Aunt Elizabeth and I have very different gods, that's all. Everybody has a different god, I think. Aunt Ruth's, for instance, is one that punishes her enemies, sends judgments on them. That seems to me to be about all the use he really is to her. Jim Cosgrain uses his to swear by but Aunt Janie Milburn walks in the light of her God's countenance every day and shines with it. I have written myself out for tonight, and I am going to bed. I know I have wasted words in this diary, another of my literary faults according to Mr. Carpenter. You waste words, Jade. You spill them about too lavishly. Economy and restraint. That's what you need. He's right, of course. And in my essays and stories, I try to practice what he preaches. But in my diary, which nobody sees but myself, or ever will see until I'm dead. I like just to let myself go." Emily looked at her candle. It too was almost burned out. She knew she could not have another that night. Aunt Elizabeth's rules were as those of Mead and Persian. She put away her diary in the little right-hand cupboard above the mantel covered her dying fire, undressed and blew out her candle. The room slowly filled with the faint, ghostly snowlight of a night when a full moon is behind the driving storm clouds. And just as Emily was ready to split into her high, black bedstead, a sudden inspiration came A splendid new idea for a story. For a minute, she shivered reluctantly. The room was getting cold. But the idea would not be denied. Emily slipped her hand between the feather tick of her bed and the chaff mattress and produced a half-burned candle, secreted there for just such an emergency. It was not, of course, a proper thing to do, but then I have never pretended, nor ever will pretend, that Emily was a proper child. Books are not written about proper children. They would be so dull nobody would read them. She lighted her candle put on her stockings and a heavy coat, got out another half-filled jimmy book and began to write by the single, uncertain candle which made a pale oasis of light in the shadows of the room. In that oasis, Emily wrote, her black head bent over her book as the hours of night crept away And the other occupants of New Moon slumbered soundly. She grew chill and cramped, but she was quite unconscious of it. Her eyes burned, her cheeks glowed. Words came like troops of obedient genii to the core of her pen. When at last her candle went out with a splutter and a hiss, in its little pool of melted tallow, she came back to reality with a sigh and a shiver. It was two by the clock, and she was very tired and very cold. But she had finished her story, and it was the best she had ever written. She crept into her cold nest with a sense of completion and victory, born of the working out of her creative impulse. And she fell asleep to the lullaby of the waning storm.